0: This is the Cater Daily Podcast for Saturday, March 23rd, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. Development economics has itself developed in recent years, according to new president of the Atlas Network, Matt Warner. He says some clear targets for those who work in development now more prominently include strong institutions like property rights and economic freedom. We spoke recently about ill-fated attempts at foreign aid and how to tackle the so-called outsider's dilemma. How has the mainstream of development economics changed uh, over the last couple of decades? I mean, the Cato Institute handed out its first Milton Friedman Prize for Advancing Liberty to Peter Bauer, Mm -hmm. who, you know, really at least burned into my mind the idea of uh, economic development as options, not as big factories churning out stuff.
1: Right, well, yeah.
0: Starting with his
1: dissent on development, I mean, things really started picking up, you know, steam about twenty years ago, where people started questioning the efficacy of what we've been doing um, since since the Marshall Plan. Um, and what's really interesting right now is that you have, um, you know, a lot of mainstream people who are taking seriously the question of how successful can we be if we're paternalistic about this, if we're technocratic about this, you know, an economy is a complex adaptive system if you apply kind of a, a very simple linear solution to it um you, you know you, you're not going to really be able to predict what's going to happen and that's what we've seen with a lot of of of, of traditional approaches to development so start in in 08 and then since then uh, there's been some different re- resolutions that have had complete buy-in across across the, the the globe about how aid needs to get much more, um, sensitive to uh, local priorities, local vision for change. But of course, that can only go so far as an intellectual exercise because if if governments and uh, aid agencies are the um, inherently the center of your strategy, regardless of how open you are to after you establish that fact, what are we going to do um, from there? Uh, I think they're always going to run into a problem. And so at Atlas Network, we talk about the outsider's dilemma. And that's that's this problem of um, I want to help, but what if the intervention itself is part of the problem, or at least you know not helping?
0: Right, and the, and you would expect that uh, agencies in DC uh, and elsewhere around the globe that are focused on these kinds of problems in uh, other parts of the world, they're in they have to engage in some motivated reasoning, uh, even as they're trying to take seriously the notion that. Outsiders can make things worse, and sometimes yeah. do.
1: I mean, one of the starkest examples, of course, there was a lot of fanfare and celebration around, and hopefulness around the big Jeffrey Sachs um, Millennium Villages project, which over ten years spent three hundred million dollars in different parts of Africa, saying, "Hey, we're going to solve the poverty trap by hitting all the symptoms at once." And you know, just a quick example, uh, they spent three hundred thousand dollars in one village in, in in Uganda and convinced them. Based on sort of outsider analysis that instead of growing bananas they ought to grow corn essentially, and so they paid everyone a, you know a, a healthy amount of money to make that switch, but they didn't anticipate all the downstream problems that that they'd run into. Namely, there wasn't really a market for corn. There it was too expensive to get it to you know where you could sell it, um, and it, and it rotted. They didn't have anywhere to save it, and so. Uh, what starts with presumably good intentions and goodwill, you know, not not only did it not help, the the villagers ended up very resentful, right? It's like now we don't even have what we had before, and and we have this new big problem. And so, um, what's what's exciting is that y- you've got a lot of books coming out on on this, you know, uh, you know, aid on the edge of chaos, uh, N- navigation by judgment, why we lie about aid. This is all stuff coming out just in the last year or two that's saying. Um, how do we solve this problem? And but at the end of the the day, it's um, very unsatisfying solutions. Like we need more field offices on the ground so that our our our, our agents are really sort of soaking up the culture. Um, it's still an outsider led solution.
0: So I was compelled uh, to read uh, the elusive quest for growth years ago, and that just is a laundry list of attempts to try to bring development to. The third world, and they all failed. Through uh, it seems one common denominator is that the people in those particular areas were not particularly invested in the solutions that were being brought to them by outsiders. And I, it, it seems unclear to me that an outside agency can actually earn that kind of buy-in, at least over the over the long term.
1: Yeah, I mean, in 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 some of these projects, the best economic development occurs uh as a function of the um jobs that the aid agency uh hires for from the 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 local some of the the best opportunities that came was working for the aid project uh but of course that can't last forever and and that's that's the big problem i mean the there was a big report that came out of uh, of 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 the uk last year that that said you know not only is is none of this really Solving the long-term problem, you know, you you can of course spend money and help someone. I mean, there's there's no doubt about that. But it's it's not economic development. And so for economic development, you have to look at what has worked, and what has worked is um, economic freedom, strong institutions. And so the the big puzzle is, and this this is why I think there's it's an exciting time for the role of think tanks because um, the missing piece of the puzzle is how do you have a local vision for change. That is that seeks institutional uh, improvement, like better property rights, better legal systems. Um, you know, uh, easy to start and close a business. Um, how how do you do that by staying faithful to economic freedom, and and being um, rooted in the local culture? And of course, a robust, high functioning local think tank is well positioned to do that in in a way that not much else is. So um, we're we're seeing a lot of of. Of uh, improvements along the path of economic freedom and solving this problem, and so part of our message is, hey, pay attention to the role of, of local think tanks. Um, it's not going to be from the World Bank and from USAID that 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 you know the the future of economic uh, development is going to come. It's going to come because of in- individual people carving their own path to prosperity, and they're going to be able to do that because of um, improvements in economic freedom and institution
0: i tell this story a lot when i visited uh, cambodia a few years ago there are you walk down the street in uh, either phnom penh or siem Reap, and there are these stalls essentially and within those stalls are people selling bottled water they're selling sunglasses they're selling uh, snacks beverages some of them are repairing motorbikes some of them, uh, you, if you asked them to watch your kids, they probably would. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it is a broad- They're enterprising. They're yeah. enterprising, but it's a broad range of things that they're doing. So the economist in me says, why not specialize? And without the institutions that you're describing, property rights, uh, you, know, a, a, you know, getting a fair shake in a right. court, right. Uh, that sort of thing. Uh, and and basic freedom to engage in in the kinds of exchange that you would like to, the the returns to specialization in many parts of the world just aren't very high. And to suggest that these people aren't aware of these theories or of how yeah. economic development happens, it's largely irrelevant. Yeah. They see the opportunities yeah. before them. They see the extent to which those opportunities might be rewarded, remunerative to them mm-hmm. and their families. They're not dumb people. No. The, it's just they have a very clear picture of what the world looks like to them. And you could say that about uh, rural America. You could say that about the inner cities in the United States. And, and it's just as true around the world.
1: Yeah. Um, Har- Harvard economist Lant Pritchett puts it well when he says there, you know, there's there's mostly not poor people in the world. There's people that live in poor places. And so if you take those people out and you put them somewhere else – uh, where where they have institutions, they, they thrive. So it's not a it's not a deficit of talent. It's not a deficit of 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 um, motivation. It's it's about the institutions. And one of the biggest challenges is not just to get the institutions right, but to and this and this is why local knowledge is so important it's it's transitioning from the informal economy to the formal. What does that look like? Um, there is no you know one-stop shop roadmap for for how to do that. how to take a lot of entrepreneurial energy that's um, not operating in the formal market because the formal m- uh, market is you know inhospitable to people in, in entering it and getting involved in it. It's too bureaucratic, too complicated. Um, how do you transition them in? There's there's a great paper by William Bommel in 1990 called um, uh, Entrepreneurship, uh, Productive, Unproductive, and Destructive. And the thing we have to keep in mind is, you know, what he says is entrepreneurs are always with us. You know, there's there's always an entrepreneurial spirit. I mean, it can be, you know, two ticks up, two ticks down, but it's there. The question is, what are the rules of the game that govern how that entrepreneurial spirit is... Expended towards, uh, you know, per- personal growth. And so, if you're if you're in Maoist China, uh, you're entrepreneurial about you know nav- navigating the political system. Uh, if if you're in the mid you know m- you know mid mid ages, the the middle ages, you're thinking about how to have title, and um, it's actually looked down on to be a merchant, right? So. Uh, and this is where Deirdre McCluskey comes in where she talks about how we think about entrepreneurship and how we talk about it and what esteem we give it. What's the rhetoric around it? And I think uh, you know, if we want a prosperous society, we have to have economic freedom and good institutions and, and we have to recognize how important and respectable um, working hard to better yourself is.
0: Have aid agencies recognized this? Or ha- have they been able to cross that hurdle, which seems like a natural hurdle for any agency that depends on, uh, you know, its funding stream being mm-hmm. one solving problems, but two also employing people.
1: Yeah. Well, of course, there's a wide variety of strategies employed by uh, by aid agencies, and I actually think these days there's a lot of open mindedness about um, how how do we get innovative and smarter about it. Uh, of course, you know we've we've seen a lot of um, recognition. Of what I'm talking about in the form of my micro lending, um, uh, that's that's been an acknowledgement that the solution is going to come from people uh, nav- navigating their own futures, and they just need a little help. But of course, um, you know, as, as, as Angus Deaton said, uh, you know, where uh, where places are ho- are hospitable to development, you don't need aid, and where they're inhospitable, aid isn't going to work, and so. You know whether you're looking at my, micro lending, or I've talked to a lot of uh, people who are, you know, private e- uh, equity who are looking in a social entrepreneurship sort of way, trying to help. Um, they're still hostage to what are what is the environment in which these talented, enterprising people are working, and so that's why I think you need the local think tank who's working on a reform agenda that is faithful to. Uh, what the empirical evidence says about economic freedom, and that you know we—it's so tempting, I guess, in human nature to say, "I want to make a difference," but I want to be kind of the one who understands how it's going to happen, and I'm going to make it happen. Versus, uh, I'm going to support someone else's vision for change and recognize that you know their own path to have the the life they want is. Is you know varied and multicolored and uh, and 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 not predictable.
0: The uh, that that second path seems a lot more like the path an investor would take,
1: right? Yeah, and and it's interesting because you know as as part of this, you can't really talk about the the success we're seeing in the world from think tanks without thinking about best practices in philanthropy, and and you know best practices is also. Sometimes a double-edged sword because you you don't want to be too too prescriptive about the way people should practice philanthropy. One of the things that we do is is we create um, pools of competitive uh, uh, grantees who are trying to uh, demonstrate in very clear ways. We call it calling your shots. We we want them to say here is the reform that we think is not only um, super important but achievable. And you know, in twelve to eighteen months, here's here's what we're going to do to achieve it. Um, and so you you can start to uh, identify which are the most viable of all the. I mean, we were about to do a a review of a pool of grantees. and There's 150 applicants. You know, uh, we have a really smart team who knows these grantees and and re- reviews these carefully, but. You have to be smart, like an investor, and say where are we most likely to see success.
0: So, leaving aid agencies aside, focusing more on think tanks, where have been some of the really big successes that uh, Atlas has supported in terms of uh, you know countries coming to recognize that you know our bottom lines, our budgets will be enhanced if we simply allow for this kind of development, this kind of freedom, uh, and sort of get out of the way.
1: Yeah. Well, um, what's exciting is, you know, just in the last 10 years, I'd say that not just the quantity, but the quality of think tank work across the world is exploding. I mean, 20 years ago, we had about 150 think tanks in our network, in 40 countries, now it's 480 in 96 countries, um, and they're they're all working hard to achieve specific things. Um, I gotta um, thank you know Cato Institute and Fraser Institute. One one of the things that is so valuable to think tanks around the world is looking at the Economic Freedom of the World Index and looking at how the their reform agendas match up with um, you know making a measurable difference in in that economic freedom and it in in an ambiguous. Uh, world like nonprofit work. Uh, you have to create your own structure and your own measurement, and that's that's been a great resource. Let me let me give you a couple of recent examples. Um, uh, for example, on tariffs, um, we we have a partner who came to us and said, uh, we have a thirty five percent tariff in in Argentina, on on laptops and tablets. Um, because of this, you know, our 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 Chilean neighbors pay a lot less. Our you know we're paying. Uh, you know, up to three times what what you pay in the US. This is terrible. And they did an effective job of explaining that, you know, the tariff was uh, benefiting a few at the expense of the many, and they succeeded in uh, eliminating that tariff. And then we've been able to tell the story of some of the downstream effects that, that their work has had, such as, you know, a philanthropist bought um, com- computers and laptops for a very low-income school in one of the worst parts of, of Argentina, and now those students have have access to better tech- technology. Um, a similar example in, in in Sri Lanka. Again, these are very specific things, but they have big impact. Uh, our our partner there, Advocata Institute, um, uh, said we want to eliminate the thirty percent tax. Uh, excuse me, the thirty percent tariff on sanitary napkins. And, you know, first you say, oh, that's interesting. Tell me more. You know, um, and they explained how in in Sri Lanka access to sanitary napkins is very low. They're very cost prohibitive artificially. And as a result of that, girls and women uh, miss out on a lot of school and a lot of work. And many of them just give up and stop going because they get so far behind. Um, and so they succeeded in making the case through research and, and education and great media presence, of saying, "Guys, this is not a, a you know a, a smart policy." And they got it re, uh, repealed. And so now we're able to tell the story of of how that affects real people. Um, is it libertarian paradise? O- overnight, it's not. But there are real people whose lives are improved because they have um, they have more freedom.
0: Yeah, and it, it it goes to the core of the of the argument that. Uh, you know these are highly specific, as you point out, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. changes that need to be made in policy. But uh, without locals being the advocates, it's it's that it's a bigger challenge to understand and then to get buy-in on changing policy.
1: Yeah. See, an outsider has to know um, uh, what's important, what's achievable, and what sequence and what design it should take. I mean um and you know i i i would argue that's not really knowable because it so much depends like any entrepreneurial in, enterprise i mean leading a think tank and achieving reforms is entrepreneurial and um so much of what an entrepreneur does they don't necessarily know how to explain it or to say okay here's how you do exactly what i did and so we're seeing that same uh, phenomenon in visionary think tank leaders who benefit from some of the um motivating uh, peer network structure that that we provide i mean in the for-profit world it's easy to measure how how you're doing you see your balance sheets and in in the nonprofit world just the size of of your budget is not enough i mean it doesn't really tell you enough about impact and so one of the things that that we've learned from research is that people are very motivated by how how they uh uh rate compared to their peers and how how they're doing. So it's it's the idea of defining in our network what does it mean to be good at this kind of work, and to constantly be redefining that upward. And you get some really inspiring, um, uh, ambitious people, you know, emerging out of that process that are inspiring everyone else. Um, a, a couple other examples in in Costa Rica, um, uh, our partner there uh, reached a, a, a judgment to nullify. Uh, plans to do price fixing on rice which would have been a disaster uh, similar things under sub- subsidies in, um, in 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 Ukraine we have a grantee there who's, who who laid, laid out a reform agenda and achieved a a cap on agricultural subsidies which all went to just a handful of producers and a plan for, uh, and, and an explicit plan for the re- eventual removal of those subsidies um, there's lots of of ways that you can have these um these successes without necessarily having big ide- ideological battles you just make very empirical um common sense arg- arguments about justice fairness and the the sort of net benefit to the country overall i mean most countries um unless you know it gets too corrupt then you're you know You probably all share the idea that you you want the country to succeed and to be more prosperous. There's just a lot of misunderstanding about how to do it.
0: Matt Warner is the new president of the Atlas Network. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.